some things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday 7. On this week's award-winning Sunday 7, we investigate Iceland's volcano, celebrate 25 years of the International Space Station, meet the woman with two uteri, and visit the Woolly Worm Festival. But first, on this day in 2007, Amazon began selling the Kindle. It now makes up two-thirds of the electronic books market, initially priced at $400, and sold out its entire inventory almost immediately. By May 2011, Amazon.com announced that Kindle e-books were outselling all printed books on Amazon.com. The eyes of the world have been on Iceland all week along with its problematic volcanoes. You may remember back in 2010, an Icelandic volcano shut down air travel across the world as the fine dust and ash it released caused huge issues for airlines worldwide. Now the Tanagrindavik in Iceland has gone viral as a massive crack spread across the town and hundreds of mini earthquakes indicated that there was an imminent eruption. The town is famous for its Blue Lagoon, which attracts tourists from all over the world. The BBC's news correspondent Respondent Jess Parker was one of those who was hurriedly evacuated from the town, along with 4,000 local residents and 52 cats. We were taken back out of the town on the understanding that we might be allowed to go back in to get a little bit closer and have a look at where the damage has particularly occurred following all of these earthquakes. But just as we were about to go back in, suddenly there was a bit of a commotion and we were told the whole area was being evacuated. A stream of cars, those that were in Grindavik, uh, left. Everyone seemed to be packing up. We have not been told why. Obviously, there are big fears about a possible impending eruption. We didn't hear anything like that, but clearly something caused a concern. So we've had to leave the area now, along with everybody else. A giant D11 caterpillar bulldozer has been hard at work digging trenches and building walls to protect the local geothermal power plant from lava flows. Professor in volcanology and petrology at the University of Iceland, Thor Thordarson, explains what has been happening underneath the surface of the town. An eruption is defined as a, if you uh, spew lava or magma out of a vent at the surface. So that if it comes up, then it will be an eruption. It's not an eruption yet because it hasn't broken the surface. But there is an intrusion uh, uh, or intrusive activity ongoing underneath the surface, sort of in the region of, of the Blue Lagoon or what we call Svartinkis, just north of the town of Grindavik. And there was a crack that opened up on Friday and propagated southward underneath the town and out to the shallow sea south of the town. And magma seems to have followed and filled in that crack and it, it seems to be moving closer to the surface. So it's not only going laterally, but it's also rising. With such a force of nature waiting to be unleashed, geophysicist Ari Trousty Goodmundson says it's hard to know what exactly the volcano does next. There are two options. Uh, there will not be any eruption at this time, at least for some time being. So uh, people have then, and the, uh, the, the authorities as well, they have to decide when it's safe for the people to return. But the uh, town is quite heavily damaged, both uh, some buildings and the infrastructure. So this has to be repaired, all of that. And uh, people have to decide if they want really to to continue over there. Or we have this uh, volcanic eruption, which could uh, spare the city to some extent, but it could also be overrun by by lava. So uh, in some case, maybe similar to what happened uh, in the 1970s. So we simply have to wait out and uh, uh, hope for the best.
If you're a long-term Twitter user or an ex-user or a user of the X platform. God, this is confusing. Anyway, it's one of those things that's probably dented your trust in the world's richest man, Elon Musk. If he can't make social media work, how come he's able to run rockets and cars and so on? When it comes to anything musky, we always turn to our Smart 7 tech correspondent, Will Guyot. So, Will, would you trust Elon Musk to let a robot install a Neuralink chip in your brain? Well, if you're a regular listener, you'll know I'm not Elon Musk's greatest fan. He's got some amazing companies and works with some incredibly talented people, but he absolutely loves pontificating badly about the future and overhyping his own ideas. So while Musk says that having a Neuralink chip will be eventually like having a direct USB connection to your brain, where you'll be able to upload new skills and information like you're in the Matrix, or even be able to download a copy of everything in your brain for your grandkids before you snuff it, the reality is for now, it's definitely much lower key than this. But Neuralink does have potential advantages to those in certain medical circumstances. Do you think Neuralink will actually work? In this early stage, it looks like Neuralink could enable those with paralysis to communicate. They reckon it's going to take control of current devices in the home, like keyboard and mouse activity, with brain waves. And there's also the suggestion from various areas of science that a brain implant like this could actually help somebody with a progressive condition like Parkinson's. Now, it worked with side effects in the animal test subjects, and that was one of the huge problems of the original Neuralink tests and got many people concerned. But now the company's looking for human guinea pigs to start their trials. How long will the trial last? And when do we think we'll all have Musk chips? Well, it's hard to say how long this is going to take. Musk obviously predicts a world where we'll all have Neuralinks in about five weeks, but the reality is it's going to take around a decade to get even the most rudimentary version of this approved and available for use in multiple countries. And that's going to be the version helping to control devices for your brain activity, not the one where you can upload the entire archive of EastEnders into your head. Um, science fiction films have long predicted a world where humans are augmented by tech like this, so it isn't unreasonable to think that we're going to start seeing it in the next 20 years or so. But by then... Elon may have already blasted off to Mars. YouTube is wading into the world of AI with a new artist-based collaboration. Is that right? So I can sing like Sia. Is that what it means? Sia is one of nine artists involved in this, and I have to admit the only other one I recognise is John Legend. But this is currently being opened up to around 100 US creators who are using YouTube Shorts. You and I can't use it at the moment, but if you like those short videos, it might soon have Sia or somebody apparently called Papoose appearing in an AI-generated 30-second piece of audio that accompanies your video. YouTube says that the voice, the instrumentation, and the lyrics are all AI-generated, and they say that soon you'll be able to generate an AI track by humming a tune that it can convert into a guitar riff or even turn a pop track into a reggaeton song which absolutely fills me with fear so it's just for established creators to play with there goes my dream of singing like Sia or Charlie Puth yeah I'm afraid so it's an experiment with a hundred creators to begin with but as is typically the way if this proves successful the artists involved are happy with the money they're receiving you'll expect to find this rolling out literally everywhere to the extent I'm already aiming for next year's Christmas number one Still to come on the Sunday 7, we celebrate 25 years of the space station and meet a double mother-to-be. NASA is pretty busy these days between launching its own streaming platform, as we mentioned last week, rebooting the moon landing program and diving deep into space to retrieve samples from asteroids. They're in the middle of what seems like a golden age. So it's fitting that this week they're celebrating 25 years of a real space landmark, the International Space Station. The idea of the ISS is to act as a test lab for NASA, basically allowing a stable structure where they can test out new technology and give astronauts experience, all while staying relatively close to Earth 
in the event of an emergency. Astronaut Josh Casada says it wouldn't have been successful though without the support and involvement of the NASA team and many different nations. I think the uh, most important thing we've learned while living and working on the space station is that we can only do it when we're all on the same page. We work with different people, different cultures, different nations, and it is amazing to see what we can accomplish when that machine is firing on all cylinders. And we do it every day, and we've been doing it for decades. Nobody does this alone. Human spaceflight is a team sport, and without the hundreds of thousands of people who are supporting it, we would never be able to do it. Gioia Massa is an international space station researcher, and she says it's been an incredible resource to have. The ISS is the most incredible wonder of the modern world. NASA has learned a lot of things from the ISS program, you know, both fundamental biological and physical sciences, but also exploration. The single greatest achievement that I feel that the ISS program has produced is that we can grow crops normally off Earth. My favorite memory of ISS support is Scott Kelly did a bouquet from the zinnias. He created the first ever off-Earth flower arrangement. What I hope to see from the ISS as we move forward is more tests of sustainable technologies and approaches like crop production. The space station is scheduled to be retired in 2030, but NASA has plans to continue with experiments and innovation over the next six years. The hope is by 2030, it'll be replaced by commercial space station operations. The Deputy Program Manager of the International Space Station is Dana Weigel, and she says it's really been an inspiration for the current fascination with space. We have spurred a commercial interest. We've spurred a government interest. There's a passion for space that didn't exist before. I think that that inspiration, that motivation that we generated across the globe is probably the the single most astounding accomplishment that we've had with the space station. Have you heard of nominative determinism? It's a hypothesis that people gravitate towards a kind of work that fits their names. So, for example, there's an American lawyer called Sue Yu and an author of a polar exploration book called Daniel Snowman. But in this case, this particular strand of nominative determinism has had a strong helping hand from nature as we introduce you to Kelsey Hatcher. She was born with a double uterus and now she's expecting twins. But I'll let her explain. I found out when I was 17, um, I had had some complications that led me to um, going to the OB and um, it took them a while to find it, but upon the ultrasound that I had then, they found, um, they discovered the two uteruses. Technically, by the book, are not twins, but they will just medically call them fraternal twins just because they are the same gestational age. They're being carried the same. They're um, within like three or four percent growth of each other. So, I mean, they're just right on track to be exactly the same. My understanding is we will um, just monitor the side that is not in labor deliver the completely the one that is in labor and then possibly start an induction for the second side. So we could have days of labor, um, deliver a baby and then start an induction to have another delivery. Uh, but we're really hoping that we can have spontaneous labor for both and that they'll just line up and our body will know exactly what to do. A double uterus is technically known as uterine didelphus and it's a rare condition. Dr. Richard Davis is a maternal fetal medical specialist. A double cervix, a double uterus is way under 1%, maybe 3 per thousand 
women might have that. And then the probability of having a twin in each horn is really crazy. When she goes into labor, if she does, then we will have to monitor each uterus and see which one's contracting and if they're doing sort of almost the same or they're different. Still to come on the Sunday 7, Australia helps out its neighbours and we head to a caterpillar festival. Right after this. Welcome back. The US has seen a wave of states legalizing cannabis that brings regulation and tax revenue for the states involved, and there appears to be real health benefits to medicinal cannabis, particularly for conditions known such as Parkinson's disease. So the race is on to find out what other currently illegal substances might have actual health benefits, and the leading candidate appears to be what is commonly known as magic mushrooms. The active ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms is called psilocybin, which the body converts to a drug called psilocin and it can have mind-altering effects. CBS News have been exploring how these psychoactive ingredients are being used on trial in Colorado. Heather Lee facilitates weekend-long retreats for women who are looking to trial alternative therapies using the mushrooms. I've been a therapist for over 30 years. I went through one of the very first trainings to become certified in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. We've come so far because in the 60s there was so much incredible research going on. And then everything got shut down with the war on drugs. I would say that mushrooms seem to be very gentle teachers. They bring to light and bring to surface material that needs to be healed. So I haven't seen anybody re-traumatized by the mushrooms in my experience. Donna Sanchez, along with her daughters Danielle and Delaney, were attending the retreat when CBS came to visit. Oh, and they brought their grandmother too, Donna Strong. I'm very open to some self-discovery. I'm in kind of a life transition seeing if I get some kind of guidance on my next steps. Thinking I might find something more about myself that I've either hidden (laughs) or need to learn about. The whole experience is carefully monitored and Heather and her team help the participants to cope with the effect of the mushrooms, but most finding it a useful and somewhat therapeutic experience. I had a rough start for (laughs) sure. I struggled a lot with that overwhelming feeling Mm -hmm. of anxiety and just I felt trapped by my own panic and then I just had to let go and I just feel like once I did it got a lot more peaceful. With climate change accelerating and the Arctic and Antarctic ice at record low levels, it's only a matter of time before the rise in sea levels starts to become a serious problem for communities all around the world. And when you think about climate change and sea levels, you may well remember the iconic image for COP26 in Glasgow of the Foreign Minister of Pacific Island, Tuvalu, giving his speech while up to his knees in the ocean. Simon Kofi went viral worldwide with his pointed protest at the slow pace of action, but his nation of 11,000 people is in real trouble as waters continue to rise. So there was good news this week as Australia signed a security, climate and integration pact with Tuvalu. Penny Wong, Australia's foreign minister, says the agreement will provide security and comfort for their neighbours as it will allow up to 280 Tuvaluans to move to Australia each year. This agreement with Tuvalu is the most important step any Australian government has taken in the Pacific since the independence of Papua New Guinea. Uh, So I think we should understand uh, what it means uh, and understand also the foresight of the the government of Tuvalu in in seeking it. Uh, As Prime Minister Natano said, uh, you know, this is a giant leap forward in our joint mission to assure security, prosperity and stability in the region. 
we re recognise we live in a more contested region. Uh, and uh, we, we have to work harder to be a partner of choice. We know that. Unlike the previous government, uh, we have been doing the work and we will do the work uh, to work with the Pacific uh, Island Forum members to assure Australia's presence as a member of the family and as a partner of choice. You've heard of Download Festival, Burning Man and the Isle of Wight, but have you ever heard of the Woolly Worm Festival? Probably not. It's not a music festival as such, rather it's a celebration of all things Caterpillar. It takes place every autumn in the town of Banner Elk in North Caroline, and according to organiser Mary Jo Brewbaker, it's kind of a big deal. This is a huge boost for the economy. It keeps some of our small business owners, mom and pop, they make enough money in one weekend to sustain them through three winter months. The woolly worm is a specific type of caterpillar that goes on to become the Isabella tiger moth, but they are certainly woolly. In fact, locals claim that the 13 different coloured segments on the caterpillars correspond to the 13 weeks of winter. Tommy Burleson explains what makes a winning woolly worm. What we've done is broken it down. We go with the greatest athlete of the bunch. When you race up the string 32 inches, and by the time you get to the top, it's right at a little over 7 feet. So so they need a tall person to pluck it off. Exactly. And the locals are very proud of their woolly worm races, pointing out that it's far more entertaining than the slightly more famous Groundhog Day that takes place in upstate New York. They hold up a little rodent and it sees its shadow. This is scientific. Your worm's got to be strong enough to win all three races. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.